good morning. Go and grab your Bibles. You can turn to 1 Peter. We'll be in uh, chapter 1. We'll be finishing up chapter 1 this morning. I believe it's somewhere around page 953 or 952. Don't hold me to that, but it's toward the end of your Bible. Because first, second Peter, 1 through 3, John, and then Jude and Revelation. And the main theme, there's probably multiple themes of the book, but one of the main pictures in this book could be summed up in the word pilgrims. That God's people in this world are like strangers in a foreign land. Having been rescued by God and given an identity that's found in the Lord Jesus, that we in this life live amongst the people we don't belong to. And we live in a land that is not our home. And what accompanies that so often is various forms and shades of pain and difficulty. Your pain and trouble that comes internally. Your pain and trouble that comes circumstantially. And in all these things, what we've seen in just a brief amount of time we've studied so far is that we have a, a living hope that is sturdy and steadfast. And we've been given an inheritance, an eternal inheritance through Christ that will never fade away. It won't perish. And we're going to hear some of those same words this morning as it relates to the Word of God. And so as I mentioned last week, when we come to know Jesus, God graciously grants us what you might call positional holiness before God. So through faith in Jesus Christ alone, by grace alone, by no work of our own, we can look to the finished work of Jesus, trust in him, and as a result of our gaze of faith in Jesus, we can be made positionally righteous and holy before God. So the Bible calls justification. It's a fancy theological word for being declared innocent, although guilty. And so we could stop there and we could sing endless songs for just the joy of being positionally holy before God. That although we're not holy, that in Jesus, we've been given everything that we're not. We become righteous in the sight of God, holy and blameless and beyond reproach. Praise be to God. We're accepted in his sight. And the one day we stand before him, will be clothed in the righteousness of another, namely Jesus, and not in our own self-righteousness that will fall woefully short of what we need to be accepted in the family of God. Positionally righteous, positionally holy before God. But it doesn't stop there. There's, there's, there's a way in which a significant part of this book is given to not just the positional holiness of the people of God, but the progressive holiness of the people of God. So having been situated positionally in the family of God, accepted in his sight, now what happens is the people of God work out their salvation. They make progress in the faith, grow in likeness to Jesus. And so last week what we saw is we saw this call as those who are obedient children. If you look back in chapter 1, Verse 14, it says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, that old way of life that now you're called to put off. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Verse 16, since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And Christians are called to be different. The idea of God being holy, the picture of God's holiness is that God is transcendent. He busts every single category we have. That he's completely other than anything we can imagine. The word holy means to be other than, set apart. 
And so the picture is this for the people of God. We are to be different because God is different. Our Father is holy, and he has children who should be holy. So we're different. We're called to be different other than just like God is different. Be holy as I am holy. Be holy for I am holy. In our text this morning, we're going to begin hearing a bit more about our call to obedience. And so let's read in chapter 1. We're going to read verses 22 through 25, a relatively brief chunk. This is God's word from 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22. It says, Having purified your souls by obedience, by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For, quoting from Isaiah chapter 40, all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So the very first part of this section we just read, we hear this statement, having purified our souls, if you're in the company of the saints, you're a Christian in this room, this is true of us. Like having purified our souls by our obedience to the truth is a really interesting, it's kind of striking because it seems to say there's a, there's a way in which we are purified by obedience, which it hits us a little bit different than the picture of by faith in Christ, we're purified, made holy in the sight of God. But there's a way in which Peter's kind of zooming us in on the role that obedience has in the life of the believer. R.C. Sproul put it this way. He says, the more our souls are involved in obedience, the greater the purification that occurs. And the more our souls are purified, the greater our obedience will be. But we shouldn't be surprised that as believers are called to obedience. They were, they were called to obey the commands of God because Jesus said it time and time again in his ministries, in the Gospels, in the New Testament. Most notably, or notably in John 14, 50, Jesus said plainly, if you love me, you'll what? You'll keep my commandments. If, if you have life in like if you love me, if you're my child, one of the chief things that will happen in your life is you will obey my commands. Obedience will follow. And since we, in obedience to the truth, have increasingly are having our souls purified, that should be something that's a stamp upon our lives. So let me just comment on something here. I was, I was talking to the men at the men's breakfast on Saturday a little bit about this because I was convicted in my own life of just, there's times in which we, we can be in settings, we can come in here this morning, there's a distinct possibility we could come in here this morning and hear certain things that, that do something to us. Make us feel something. They, they stir us. Like we have an emotional reaction to songs or the truth that we hear as I preach the word of God. There might be something that takes place. But, it, but what can happen is that f those feelings can be just that. It's like you're just catching feelings, to quote the theologian Justin Bieber. You just, you just come in here catching feelings. Like we just, we love the way it sounds, the way it feels, and we just, but what happens is we, is we go, and all that happened is we felt something, 
is we felt like a twinge of conviction. But we just left it in the realm of feelings and emotions. But here's one thing I'd say plainly, and I, I say it with sincerity because I felt the conviction in my own heart yesterday at the breakfast. Those feelings, those emotions are 100% useless if they don't result in obedience. They don't mean anything if they don't drive us to apply the word of God in our lives to our hearts in such a way that it brings about change. Like we look more and more like Jesus, progressively holy in our lives. And so I would just submit to us as a family, as we hear the word of God, like one of the things that maybe we should do is just simply ask the question that I would phrase in this way. Like what is one step of obedience that God is calling me to take today in light of what I've heard? If we just commit to that one question and walk away with more than just a feeling about something we heard, but considering more deeply, like what is one step God is calling me to take in response to what I've heard today, then maybe just maybe we'd inch more toward, if you love me, obey my commands. Jesus said in John chapter 13, he says, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. In John 13, notably at the Last Supper, among those things that Jesus spoke of was a new commandment to his disciples. You've probably heard of this, read it, seen it, studied it for many of you. In John 13, verses 34 through 35, Jesus says this, "Says a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. The author, preacher, Francis Schaeffer, in his book called The Mark of the Christian, said two things that I want to highlight. And he said it this way. He says, Jesus gives the world permission to judge the genuineness of our Christian faith. In this section that we just read, John chapter 13, Jesus gives the world permission to judge the genuineness of our Christian faith on what basis? Love. Brotherly love. They will know you are my disciples by the way you love one another. Jesus gives the world permission to evaluate the genuineness of our faith based on this singular reality. How are you loving one another? Loving your brother, your sister, and the family of God. Schaefer goes on to suggest that Jesus gives the world permission to even judge the truthfulness of his incarnation. On what basis? Oneness, which flows from sincere brotherly love. He says in John 17, this is Jesus praying for his people, the disciples and all of those who would believe, namely us in this world and believers across the world and Throughout history, Jesus prays. He says, the glory that you, speaking to the Father, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I and them and you and me, that they may be per become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. Church family, this is what Jesus is saying. Like the world is going to know that God the Father sent God the Son into the world as you and I as a family of faith become one and love one another well. That is profound. 
He gives the world permission to judge the reality of the incarnation of Jesus based on how united in love we are with one another. That is significant. So how are we doing? What's one step of obedience God is calling us to take today in light of what we hear right now? Is the love of God alive in me, in you? Is the love of Jesus Christ being expressed through me to other people? So our purification of soul, which comes through obedience to the truth, leads us to love. So is it love for every neighbor? Yep. Is it love for all sorts of neighbors in the world in general? 100%. But that is not what's being talked about here. There's a specific, special, even peculiar way that God is calling the people of God to love one another. Like the the family of God, the the Christian church is called to love one another in such a way that the the world looks at it with a curiosity. Like what in the world is happening in this place? People from all sorts of backgrounds and socioeconomic levels and ethnicities and personalities living in one family. It should just be a gigantic mess. And in some ways it is, but it's a glorious, gracious mess because we love one another despite those differences. As we study through in the book of Ephesians, like even Jews and Gentiles, these two categories that would never blend in the family of God through Jesus Christ become one family. So whether you take white, black, black, Latino, you take people from every tribe, tongue, people, group, and nation, and the family of God is formed through a common salvation in Jesus, do we love one another like we're family? Is there a oneness that the world sees? This special love that we're called to have, and it's called to be a love for the brotherhood that's sincere and intense. Sincere and intense. So when you go back to the text, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, this is verse 22, for sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. That word earnest is where I'm getting the word intensity. It's kind of maybe more a common word that we would use versus earnest, but there's a sincere and intense love. We love with sincerity. The call to be holy as God is holy is to endeavor through the power of the Holy Spirit to reflect God's nature in all our conduct. To say that God is holy is to say he's perfect in everything. I mentioned this last week. We say God is loving, that means he loves perfectly. We say that God is gracious, that means he is perfectly gracious. When we say that God is merciful, he's perfectly merciful. When we say that God is just, he is perfectly just. And he's perfectly righteous. In everything that he does, he is perfect. There's no room for improvement with God. In everything that he does, he's perfect. Everything he does as well as in who he is. So when God loves, he loves perfectly. And his love is perfectly sincere and perfectly pure. And as we saw last week, there's a way in which our lives are to move closer and closer to to be in the image of the one who has saved us and made us. We are to love by God's grace increasingly over time in the way that God perfectly loves. That would be our pursuit. Possessing and pursuing a holy love for one another. Romans chapter 12 is one of many places. We could do a year-long series on the word love in the New Testament. But I've got just a couple minutes to try to highlight a 
a couple facets to the diamond that is love in the scriptures. Romans chapter 12, verse 9, the same word is here in, uh, in verse 9. It says, let love be genuine, sincere, or without hypocrisy, some of your translations may say. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Now, I don't know about you, but I, I'm intrigued by people who can impersonate the voices of other people. Anybody like watching impersonators? It's just remarkable the way that a human being can sound like another human being. So whether it's a comedian or anybody else, it's impressive to me because I've tried it before and it's just a mess. I can't do it. But you look at an impersonator and if you look up impersonation or, or the verb impersonate in your dictionary, what you're probably going to find is someone who, who acts like, pretends to be another for the purpose of entertainment or deception. So what's my point? As believers, we can't impersonate love. We can't say the right things and pretend that we love one another, but yet not actually do it in real life. Don't impersonate love. Don't really sound like the real thing, but live in love differently. Live with intense or love with intensity, a fervency. The word earnest comes from a verb. It's really interesting because the verb means to extend your hand. So the verb earnest that we're looking at in our text, it was called the love, earnestly from a pure heart, comes from the same verb we find in Mark chapter 1. I'll read this because it illustrates the point. This is Jesus interacting with a leper. Just kind of picture the scene, and then I'll point you to the word that matches our text. A leper came to him, to Jesus, imploring him, and kneeling, said to Jesus, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, Jesus stretched out his hand, that's the same word as earnest here, and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. As I was studying this this week, that picture, I just couldn't escape from that picture. Maybe it's something like this. Like Christian love moves from hands that are folded or even hands that we're sitting on and causes them to be extended, to be stretched out in the direction of another, to touch, to care for, and to love them with what we often say is the hands and the feet of God. But to earnestly love someone is to, is to avail yourself, like your hands, your ability, your energy, your resources in order to love and support them. Jesus was moved with pity before he stretched out his hand. So we clearly see the presence of emotion and feeling that often, maybe always, accompanies holy love. It's not detached from emotion. But we can be tempted to think that loving with intensity is limited to or dependent on our emotional intensity or feelings. Anybody ever been there before? I have. Now, we can be tempted to think that intense love is merely the presence of intense feelings to love. But our love for one another will often be demonstrated by intense emotions 
But listen to me when I say this, but our love for one another must never be dependent on intense feeling or emotions. Because if we wait for ourselves to feel strongly enough the impulse to love, it may never come. My guess is all of us have been there. There's, there's something that we're, we're being called to do, a way that we're being compelled to engage. And maybe for some reason our emotions haven't gotten there. We just don't quite feel strongly enough. It's a big step of faith or it's a big issue. It's going to be complex and messy. Or I've got to take a step of faith to, to enter back into a relationship that's broken. And I don't quite feel the intensity that matches the difficulty of the situation. But God doesn't say love one another if you feel strong enough to love one another. He says, be rooted and grounded in love. You're like a tree that's planted in the love of Christ and it swells up from within you. Like Jesus is the soil and his love that gives life to the tree that extends and gives love to the world and to the family of God. Our love for one another will often be demonstrated by intense emotions, but can never be dependent on those feelings or emotions is the only fuel to do it. So here's what I would submit based on this text. If, if we were sitting with Peter, the author of this book, one of the 12 disciples, if we're sitting with Peter having a conversation about brotherly love, which in some ways we are, and if we asked him how, we're, how we are able to love one another with sincerity and intensity, his answer, I believe, based on what we just read, is you are able to love one another because God's word is permanent and imperishable. We'd be like, oh, yeah, great. Uh, I don't know what that means. I don't, I don't really understand. How does that? Because you can read it and be like, oh, yeah, sure. Yeah, the word of God is permanent. Therefore, I love. Like, so, no. Still don't, can't connect the dots. Like, what, what is that actually saying? Like, how do we connect that statement to this call to love one another with intensity and sincerity? I'll do my best to, with the help of one of the commentators that I think stated it pretty well. In verse 23, the call to love one another, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but imperishable through the living and abiding Word of God, the Word of God that remains forever. So David Helm, uh, commentator and pastor, called this, this section, the answer to that peculiar question of like, how do these two connect? The call to love and the permanence of God's Word, like what is the relevance? He called it the logic of love. And we love one another because the Word of God is living and can bring about life. The picture of being born again, which we saw in the very first part of chapter one, we've been born again. God has caused us to be born again to a living hope is verse three. The picture in the Bible seems to be this. The first time that we were born, there was something wrong with us. So we had to be born again. Namely, what was wrong with us? We were born sinful with a bent towards self-rule and rebellion. So there's an earthly birth of of water and of flesh. And because we're broken, there needs to be a second birth, a heavenly birth. That's what born again means, born from above. And the word of God is what's living and active and can bring about that life. Our secondly birth comes through the imperishable seed that is the living and abiding seed of the word 
of God. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Can you think of a time where, <clears throat> I don't know, maybe... Maybe it's, maybe you left here. Maybe you left church on a Sunday. You left some other church. Or maybe you studied your Bible alone. And you left, and it was almost like the Word of God was chasing you. Like you just, you just couldn't shake something that you heard God's Word proclaim or say. I know I had that experience when I came to faith when I was 21. One of my favorite contemporary pastors, H.B. Charles, just a remarkable young pastor, but he... He preached for the first time at 11 years old. He got his first pastorate when he was 16, when his father died. He's been preaching ever since. He's younger than I am, but has just a, a significant platform. He's a special brother. But speaking of his testimony, he speaks about when he was six years old. He's a little bit younger than my youngest daughter. Six years old. He goes home one night. Couldn't sleep Saturday night. The only thing he says about this night, he said, I couldn't get out of my mind. The things that I had heard from the word of God. It was like they chased me in my sleep. That's my words, describing his testimony. That's something of what it means for the word of God to be living and active. That the imperishable seed of the word of God is living. And it brings about life. That church family, like when we get up here, Chris and I were talking this last week. There's been, some, I don't know, there's been something. It seems like the last month or so, when Pastor Bill's been preaching, when I've been preaching, it's just like there's, there's several people that have talked about just feeling like that God has done something in their hearts in the midst of the preaching of God's word. And we praise the Lord for that. It has nothing to do with us. It has everything to do with this. Because every week, we tee up another sermon. I can assure you, in about a month's time, maybe, if not sooner, I'd run out of stories to tell from my own life. This is all I have to give you. This is all you need. This is all, this is all we need. This is the living, breathing Word of God. It's living and active, and it cuts, and it sharpens, and it rebukes, and corrects, and causes us to grow in righteousness. For God's sake, for the sake of His name, so just like with HB, when the word of God chases him down, it's true of every Christian in this room and in this world, the word of God moves in such a way that it brings life where only death was found before. It breathes like in this imperishable way. The word of God comes, it changes us and leaves us forever changed. Positionally holy, progressively holy, and ultimately holy when we stand before God. The word of God is the only thing that can do that. With the spirit of God moving and working, illuminating to our minds and our hearts what the word of God is saying. And our hope and confidence as preachers. When I say preachers, I mean as pastors preaching in this room. And when I say preachers, I mean you preaching outside this room. This is our only confidence. It's the word of God, that the word of God is living and active and it will do its work. When it's let out and proclaimed, a pastor friend of mine used to talk about Jesus like he's just a lion. Let him out of his cage. He'll do the work. He'll save souls. He'll shatter hardness of heart. The word of God is living and active 
and does what we can never do on our own power or personality or ingenuity. All life in this world is fading, including our physical frames. You see this in that quote from Isaiah 40. The temporary broken glory of this world will pass away, but the word of God remains forever. It's forever alive. It provides permanent life, and it also produces holy love. The word of God is living and brings about life, and the word of God is living and brings about love. So we often quote this passage from Isaiah 55, and it's good that we do. Isaiah 55, verses 10 through 11, in relation to the word of God, just hear these words. It says, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word, the word of God, be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and shall succeed in the thing for which I said it. What confidence should we have in the word of God that I have today, this meager offering of a sermon, because the word of God will do its work. It's sufficient. I tell people all the time, because a pastor, like I always feel inadequate to be a pastor, but I never feel ill-equipped because of sufficiency of the word of God. It's what we stand on. It's all we have to give. Man, is it enough to take broken people and make them new and make them usable in the hands of God on this side of eternity and make them secure forever on the other side of eternity. Praise be to God. The word of God calls us to and enables us to live out an abiding, permanent love for the brethren. The permanency of our love is rooted in the permanency of God's word, the good news which was preached to us. This good news that was preached to us, that's the very last statement of what we read. And this word... This imperishable word is the good news, which is literally what gospel means, that was preached to you. What is this good news? Maybe I'll just ask a set of questions. Maybe it'll strike some of you in your heart to encourage you, challenge you. Maybe if you're in this room, you've never trusted in Christ, maybe one of these questions reflects maybe the temperature of your own heart. Maybe the questions would sound something like this. Tell me I'm always going to have a hope and a future. God's word says, your future, your hope is imperishable. It won't fade away. You're protected by my very power for a salvation ready to be revealed in the final time. Take heart. Tell me you'll always love me. God says, nothing can separate you from my love. Tell me that I can change. Well, you've been Ransom, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but you've been set free by the precious blood of Jesus, forever free to be able to serve me, to love me, and to be able to change by the the word and the spirit of God. And maybe something in us kind of aches as well as we think about this call to holy love. And maybe we ask the question to God, just tell me that I can love this way. Give me some hope that I can change in such a way that I love people the way that you love them. Maybe among his words to us is my word is living and it's active and it produces love. It gives life and it produces love. 
if we as God's people submit our lives to his word. If you're in this room this morning, and I'll close with these thoughts. Maybe you have no idea how you ended up here this morning. Maybe you just jumped in a car with some friends and here you are. Listen to this weird guy quoting Justin Bieber in a sermon and you're like, what am I doing? Like, what, what am I doing here? Or maybe like me, like some 22 years ago, all I knew is that I was, I was chasing a girl. I didn't know Jesus. And I ended up in a place where the gospel was preached and I was forever changed. Because by and by, I understood that I was broken before God. And I knew that if I met God face to face, I would have no idea what I would tell him as to why I deserved to get into heaven. I was confronted with the fact that all flesh will pass away. This life is going to end. Even the temporary glory we see in this life is fades. So if you're confronted with that question today, you don't know where you stand with God, then just take heart that Jesus offers you free and final and full salvation today if you trust in him. But be sure that you will stand before God one day and you want to be clothed in the righteousness of Jesus that alone will make you acceptable in the family of God forever. Or else you'll find yourself separate from him forever. And maybe in all of your scrambling to find security, in all of your efforts to find love that won't fade away, in the midst of all the working and toiling and hiding and performing to feel better about yourself, in your inability to love other people well, God speaks a word to you this morning. It's my word that's secure. It's my word that provides you the pathway to know what true love is. It's my word that brings about new life, not your work, not your words, not your performance, not your consistency, but it's the living and active and permanent word of God. And it's my word made flesh that dwelt among you, that went all the way to the cross and took all of your shame, all of your guilt, all of your feeble trying. And through his work alone, you can be made right with God. And if you trust in Jesus Christ, church family, if you're a believer in this room, a member of the family of faith at Crossway, if you've been given life through Jesus, then you are ones who give life to others. If you're rooted in the love of Jesus for you, then you give away the love of Jesus to others out of obedience to the word of God for the joy of your heart. You seek to love other people the way that you've been loved by Christ, imperfectly for sure, but not apathetic to growth. To be people who sacrifice. Jesus loved us that while we were sinners, he would die for us. In an unlovable state, he moved toward us intentionally. Do we intentionally love other people that way? And what a joy it is to know that we take this step. We ask the question, like, what step do you want me to take? How do I love better the people in my life? Then maybe we get to experience something of the world is going to look in and they're going to know that we follow Jesus because we love one another well. Maybe, just maybe. On this side of heaven, we'd be able to operate in a family where that reality is bubbling up all over the place. As you see and hear about one of our sisters in the hospital with a family who lost their baby this week. What drives someone to do that? Say, love 
their sister and their brother? What causes another brother to fast and to pray with his brother when his sister is in surgery? Well, it's love. It's a love for Jesus and a love for people. What causes you to think about, hey, I was just praying for you. I want to know how you're doing, that thing you told me about. How can I support you? Or here's a meal. We want to support you. How can I serve you today? All of those movements and all the significant and little ways are the love of Jesus pouring out of the people of God. All of it so that the world would know that Jesus is alive. He's alive in us. His love is bubbling out through our lives, through our words, our actions, he might make a name for himself. And I pray that he makes a name for himself here because we love one another well. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. God, I, as I mentioned at the beginning, uh, there's such a temptation for us to be driven by feelings. And even as much as I want to preach with earnestness, I don't merely want to some emotional reaction because I believe that your heart for us is that we would be people that even now today, uh, just like we were the very first moment we came to know you, that we are increasing in our obedience to you. That if we do love you, we'll, we'll obey your commands. And so God, in the hundreds of ways, just in this small room, that command uh, arrests our hearts and gives us conviction. I pray that you give us the grace to respond to that conviction, not by merely just feeling something, but confessing, agreeing with you that it's wrong and moving beyond it to a life in keeping with repentance that's zealous for holiness and that seeks to obey you in all things and all our conduct that we be holy because you are holy. God, help us to be different in this world because you are different. Help us to love people and particularly to love one another in the family of God so that the world would know that Jesus makes a difference in our lives. That the world would look in with a curiosity into our small little church, our small sliver of the kingdom, and they'd see something of the good news of Jesus that was preached to us and now is being lived out through our lives and our tangible love for one another. Spirit of God, I pray to help us. I don't have the ability to create change in the hearts of your people, but you do. And I believe you delight in it. So through your word, through your spirit, would you move in your heart and the hearts of your people in such a way that we would change, that we would grow, that we would increase in our conviction that we love one another well, because you deserve to be honored in this life. And we want people to see your presence within us and our church family. And so we ask that you do these things for the sake of your name, for the joy of us as your people. We love you. Pray these things in Jesus' name.